Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a sermon from Scott from several years ago where he examines the question, who was the Mary of Christmas? What do we really know about the mother of Jesus? What was she like? The real Mary was a young, unwed, pregnant teenager living in first century Palestine. And yet, from the moment she learned about God's plan for the Messiah, she showed herself to be a woman of courage, humility, and resolve. Join us as Scott explains how this seemingly insignificant young woman was used by God to shift the tectonic plates of history. You may never look at the Mary figurine in your nativity scene the same way again. What is the one favorite thing you like about Christmas the most, or like to do at Christmas season? Can you think of that? You don't have to say it aloud. Some of us might not want to know. Everyone's more friendly. Everyone's more friendly. Very good. It is. Some of us like presents, huh? I think uh, many of us think of Christmas as a time for presents. Some of us like the Christmas dinner or the time when the whole family gets together. In our family, sometimes that's about three or four different dinners at different homes. And it's fun being with family, uh, going somewhere warm. Some of you may be thinking, some of you like the snow during the winter. And it wouldn't be Christmas without snow. Um, I think Christmas uh, in 80 degree weather on a beach is a pretty pleasant idea. <laughs> Especially after some cold days we've had. Some of you are thinking that it's downtime from work, and uh, especially if you're students, this is a great time of the year. My students right now are almost all ill because they don't sleep after Thanksgiving until they've taken their final exams, and then 72% of them are sick over Christmas because they haven't slept the first two weeks of December. But they really look forward to this time off. And some of us really like the Christmas services at church. But I think of how we think of Christmas. Have you ever wondered what the very first Christmas was like? What was it like to be Mary and Joseph in that first century at Christmas? Well, there was no snow in spite of all the Christmas cards with snow on it. It's a pretty warm, dry area. Even up in the Galilee, it may rain a bit, but it's not going to be snowing. I'm going to ask you this morning to journey with me into the world of Mary. Into, say, the middle of the first century, well after Jesus has died, and ask Mary a question. We want to ask, Mary, what was that first Christmas like? Now, I have to begin by saying uh, that Mary is not a happy topic among Protestants. We've not done Mary well. Is that right? Are you with me on this? Uh, Mary makes some of us nervous. For some of us, Mary evokes a past in the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition 
where Mary perhaps meant too much. And that's something we've put behind us. But others of us, maybe who've grown up in Protestant traditions, evangelical traditions, uh, Mary's been there, but it's okay if she maintains her distance. And I want to try to help us think about the way the Bible talks about Mary, not the way art talks about Mary. And we saw a marvelous, it looked to me like a Dutch painting of Mary that was up here, it looked sort of like the Dutch artist of the 18th and 19th century. Uh, Mary is often depicted in Christian art as pious. Her typical posture is either this or this. She never seems to be too happy, almost sullen and serious, a bit poker-faced. She's got a little bit of red cheeks, maybe, just a flush, not too much. Wouldn't want to make her too joyous. Her gown is always perfectly pleated. <laughs> perfectly. It just drapes over her. How do we know that she was skinny and artistic-looking? Maybe she was roly-poly like many of us. Have you ever thought of this? We just depict, and when we depict Mary, we idealize what we would want a Mary to look like, not what she was really like. And her gown is deep, is always, it's usually blue. This is a white one. This is a very unusual depiction of Mary in the history of art. It's sort of a Carolina blue gown. Right? Maybe, and a friend of mine said it was a Duke blue, but I said, no, that's a little deeper, and I would never cheer for Duke anyway. <laughs> and I want to be for Mary for a while. And, uh, and, and it's always beautifully draped over this body, and that's the picture we have of Mary, because that's our art. Uh, for some of us, though, Mary makes us break into a rash. <clears throat> One time I was home, with our family, with my parents, and my mother asked me what I was writing on, which is her typical question for me, because that's sort of what I do. And I said, I'm writing a book about Mary. And this was her statement. And if you quote her, I'll tell her that you're a liar. And if you quote me, I'll tell her that you're a liar. My mother said, why? She's a Catholic. I said, Mom, she was the mother of Jesus. <laughs> Mary, for many of us, is a bit like an exotic aunt. I had an exotic aunt. Her name was Leela. And she came to our house, thankfully, only at Christmas. And she brought weird candies. And she sat in our favorite chairs and didn't move. She cheered for the wrong teams at Christmas. And I was exceedingly glad that she only came once a year. And I was thrilled that she never came in August when we were having fun. And that's sort of the way many of us look at Mary. She's a bit of an exotic aunt that we put in a Christmas crash piece in our house. And on January 1st, if it's your tradition maybe, or the day after Christmas, however you, how, however anal retentive you are about putting all those things away, 
we wrap her up, pat her on the bottom, and tell her to come back next year and stay away until then. Is that right, the way we treat Mary? But as Protestants, I think we have to learn to embrace Mary, and I think we have to give her a good old-fashioned biblical look again and embrace the Mary of the Bible. We talk so little about Mary, and she was so important in the pages of the Bible. Hardly anyone is quoted more than Mary, other than, let's say, Paul and Jesus. Jesus gets a lot of attention in the New Testament. And Peter. But after that, Mary comes in a very close, uh, high-level importance in the pages of the New Testament. So I'd like to, for us to look at Luke chapter 1 again, if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 1. We want to ask, what was it like, Mary? What was it like to be with Jesus? What was it like to be there in that first Christmas? And I want to begin with this idea, that for Mary, I think she would say that Christmas meant God's special presence in the world. Presence with a C-E, not a T-S. God's special presence. Now, I, I want to begin by saying I have a bit of a beef with Christmas services. And because I never get to speak at Christmas, I get my opportunity now on the platform to complain <laughs> that people talk too much at Christmas and don't read the passages in the Bible about Christmas enough. I've often said, I could just go to a Christmas service where all we did was read the Christmas stories of the Bible. And that would be enough. Tell the preacher to read and sit down and shut up, that we've had enough with that story. So I'm going to read quite a bit from the Bible this morning because I think these are texts that we don't look at enough and particularly don't look at all at once enough. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth, now this is Mary's relative, older relative, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in the Galilee, which is north uh, in the Holy Land, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, or in Hebrew, Mariam. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. Now that's an, uh, kind of a formal expression. The word basically means, hello, um, how about this? You know, that's pretty unusual, have an angel speak to you. And then the angel says, you are highly favored, or the grace of God is upon you, and the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at the angel's words, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, as all of us would be as well. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Yeshua, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom 
will never end. Powerful expression here about Mary. Mary hears these words of the angel and recognizes that God is going to do something very, very special. That God is finally going to send the Messiah into the world. Now, you have to recognize this as a first century person. Mary is probably between 12 and 15 years old. Young Jewish girls got married between 12 and 15. And I frequently bring this up in my classes to my young female students. And I ask them, because you can do this with college students, females, how old are you? You don't ask anyone, like in church service, you don't do that. <laughs> and they'll say, I'm 20. And I say, if you were a first century Jewish girl, you would probably have been married for seven years by now. And the inevitable response is, yuck. <laughs> Imagine that. Mary is about 13 years old, 14 years old. And God says, I'm going to step in in a new presence. And the presence will be that you will give birth, birth to the Messiah. And I think when we asked Mary years later, what was Christmas like? She would say, I remember. I remember being alone when Gabriel spoke to me and said, you will be the mother of the Messiah. And I sensed that God was going to be present in this world in a way he had never been present. And I think Mary then would have told us the story and I want to tell you a little bit of my own theory. I believe that Luke chapters 1 and 2, if you ever have a good time, and today the Bears don't play till 3 o'clock, so between 1 and 3 you have plenty of time to read Luke chapters 1 to 2. That's, all you, that's your only assignment today, Luke 1 through 2. I'm a professor. I give assignments. I grade them too, but I won't grade yours. I think Luke chapters 1 through 2 are the result of Luke having interviewed and had conversations with Mary. The information in Luke 1 through 2 was known in the early church to only three people, Mary, Joseph, and Gabriel. There is no indication that Luke got to have conversations with angels. Instead, he probably relied on Mary. So when Mary begins to reflect upon what it was like to be in God's presence and to have God present. Notice what she also said in Luke chapter 2 about a powerful event. Suddenly, she is able to recall, because of stories she's heard, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace, to those on whom God's favor rests. These are the words of the angels to the shepherds. And later in this chapter, in verse 22, uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the temple, a ceremony where they gave their child to the priest, and then the priest gave it back on exchange of a gift, 
Mary and Joseph are so poor, they have to offer a poor man's, a poor person's, a poor family's gift, and they give Jesus back to them. Now there was a man, in verse 25, in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous. Now this is a technical word for someone who follows the Torah. And he was devout, he was waiting, hanging out in the temple. On the top of, in Jerusalem, you go up from the, the valley of Gehenna, you go up into the city of David, and then you climb stairs. And a lot of stairs will get you on a flat temple mount. Today, the uh, uh, Muslim mosque is there, and the Al-Aqsa mosque, and the Dome of the Rock, and it's flat and big, huge, many football field sides of the temple. And Joseph and Mary have come up the stairs, and as they come through, there's an old man who grabs the baby Jesus from the arms of Mary because he had been hanging out in the temple waiting for the Messiah to come because of the injustices that Israel was experiencing and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of Torah required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God and said this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can dismiss your servant in peace. Which Simeon is saying, I can now die because I have seen the Messiah. My eyes have seen your redemption and salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Notice the scope of Simeon's understanding of salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Not many Jews cared about the redemption of Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, and I think Mary ignored this and only later remembered it, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I think Mary's thinking, sword? soul, what's this about? She doesn't know, but time will reveal. So she senses that God's presence is with them in a new way. And at the end of uh, later in Luke chapter 2, Jesus, as a 12-year-old, what could be called his bar mitzvah, Jesus is in the temple, the whole family's down in Jerusalem, and they walk a day away, maybe as far north as Stavopolis, and they have to come back. That's the second day. They spend a third day trying to find Jesus in the temple. And then Jesus is found by his mother, not his father. And his mother says, why have you treated us like this? Home alone. What's it like to be the mother of the Messiah and lose the kid? That makes you nervous too. You know, lose the Messiah. It's okay to lose just an ordinary Green Bay Packer fan baby. <laughs> you wouldn't want to lose a Bear fan because there aren't very many of us left. 
but they lost, they lost the Messiah. And so she barges into the temple. Your father and I have been anxiously searching again for you. And Jesus' response is utterly remarkable. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? And Luke says they had no idea what he was talking about. Then he went down to Nazareth. They come down to Nazareth. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. When I was a child, Christmas meant Christmas presents. It meant snow. Sometimes during Christmas, I got what I wanted. I remember as a child getting a football uniform wrapped up. That was awesome. Sometimes I got bad things. My parents once bought me a train set. I had no desire for a train set. And they wasted all their Christmas money for me on a train set, which we opened up that one day, and I closed back up, and I don't think we ever played with it again. I just wasn't interested. But that's what Christmas was about, sort of a suspense of what's going to happen and what's going to be under the tree. And that's the way I think many of us think about Christmas. But I think we need to play with this word a little bit and what it sounds like, a homophone, and realize that for Mary, Christmas did not mean Christmas presents. It meant the presence of God. And we need to recognize that Christmas for us needs to be wrapped up with who God is, what God is doing in this world, and what God summons you and me to do in this world. And we're going to run out of time because I prepared more than I, uh, I'm going to obviously finish because that's only the first point. <laughs> and I prepared three, so we're going to move on. But first of all, I think if we asked Mary, what was Christmas like? I think she'd say it was all about the presence of God in a new way. The second thing I think Mary would tell us about is that it was about the plot of God in this world. What was Christmas like? It was a plot. Christmas Advent themes, if you light candles and light them in a fairly traditional way, are about these themes. Hope, peace, justice, and love. Christmas, I would like to suggest to you, this morning, is the preeminent Christian political posture. Christmas is where we make our statement as Christians in the political world. I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. We're not talking Newt Gingrich or Mitt Romney or whoever else, or Barack Obama. We're talking about a Christian political posture. And our posture is that there is hope for justice and peace in this world through King Jesus, and only through King Jesus. At Christmas, we can remind ourselves, and particularly this year because political stuff is so intense, that we don't trust in Washington, D.C. We trust in King Jesus, that our president, is Jesus, not Obama, and not who it will be in 
two or three or four or ten years, that our political posture is that we listen to King Jesus. And this is why the Magnificat that was sung this morning is so significant. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, we have the most brilliant song in the entire Bible. Mary said, my soul, and Mark was right, the Latin is Magnificat, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the poverty, this is probably the word more than personal humility, the poverty of his servant. From now on, all generations except Protestants will call me blessed. Is that right? Should we do a poll of how many in this year have said, Mary, you are blessed among all women? This is exactly what Mary announces because she realizes her own significance in being the mother of the Messiah. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation because God is faithful. Christmas is the time to celebrate that God is faithful. Now notice our political posture as Christians because Jesus is our king and Mary is beginning to announce what he will bring. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Mary is 14 years old. Let's just guess that for a On the throne is a tyrant who makes Robert Mugabe and Idi Amin look like Sunday school teachers. Herod the Great was a brutal tyrant who murdered anyone who looked at him wrong. Family members, he did away. If you said, will I be your successor? Tomorrow you were gone. Poison and drowning and hangings. Herod put people away. And Mary is singing a song. She's going toe to toe and nose to nose with Herod the Great in this song. And let's put away this idea that Mary was some soft, pious, poker-faced woman in a piece of Christian art in Europe. This was one tough woman with chutzpah. <laughs> I think when the angel said, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. She didn't say, may it be to me according to your word. She said, bring it on. It's about time. Let's put the Messiah on the throne. I'll be right behind him, whispering things to him on how to run this place, because I've got some strong opinions. <laughs> and you watch Mary's character unfold in the pages of the New Testament, and she was one tough woman. She was not a pious milk toast piece of art. She was a living, active, hoping, aching, yearning Jew who wanted justice to be established, and it had to begin with Herod the Great coming down. That's exactly what she sings in verse 51. In verse 52, she gets personal with him. He has already brought down rulers from their thrones, and he's lifted up the humble, same word she's using, for herself. 
He has filled the hungry, like my family, with good things, and he sent the rich, like Herod the Great, and his minions away empty. He has finally helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's the Magnificat that Mary sang, and it is the plot of God in this world to instantiate, to bring kingdom communities into existence in local communities where they embody the Magnificat dream of justice for people in the community. And when that happens, the rule of God is established and Mary's Magnificat is fulfilled in our communities. Mary's story unfolds in the pages of the Gospels. In, Luke cha in John chapter 19, and we won't go there, you saw this in Mel Gibson's movie. Marie, in the person of Maria Morgenstern. Maria Morgenstern is at the cross when Jesus dies. And Jesus from the cross says to Mary, this is your son, John, a relative of Jesus. And to John, he says, this is now your mother. And they, Jesus, in a sense, forms a testament for, that, for John to take care of his mother because Jesus' brothers evidently don't believe, and his father has probably passed away. In Acts chapter 1, Mary is with the early Christians, praying for the Spirit of God to come, and the brothers of Jesus are now with her. They've come to faith, probably as a result of the resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit comes down upon all these people, and they are filled with God's Spirit. They speak in tongues. They announce victory in Jesus, that through the resurrection, God has established Jesus to be the Messiah. And then I think we see perhaps the most significant thing that is actually a Christmas vision. In Acts chapter 2, at the end, uh, the fellowship of the believers, after the Spirit has come upon them, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed. And now listen to these words that made Mary's Magnificat heart joyful. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything is resources, possessions, houses, fields, gardens, monies. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Here's what I would like to say to you. If you follow Mary's character through the Gospel of Luke, you will see a woman who sang for the community of justice, the community of peace, where the poor will be taken care of and the rich will no longer oppress. And this doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. It begins to happen just a bit, and then it doesn't happen. And then Jesus dies, and all their hopes are crashed. And then Jesus comes back from the grave, and now their hopes are renewed, and God sends the Spirit, and he creates a new community, and the early church is the Magnificat community fulfilled. It is your Christmas calling as Christians to embody the Magnificat dream 
by dwelling with one another in justice and peace, caring for one another and building in Antioch and in Northern Lake County an established community that looks like the Magnificat because you follow Jesus. Last night, my wife and I were at a store. And I was, Chris told me to bring a book. So I brought a book and I sat and read. And then she got through all the shopping she had to do. And then uh, she was checking out. And I stood at the end of the checkout counter. And I noticed as I was looking at my wife, I noticed a lady walking very slowly this way. And I didn't know what she was doing. I didn't pay that close attention. And the next thing, there was a lot of commotion next door, next to the, the next aisle. And they were all really happy and joyous. And they kept saying, that was so kind. That was so kind. Evidently, the lady had bought so much that they gave her a coupon for a, a lot of money. And it was Christmas, so she just walked down till she found someone that she thought might need that money. And she gave them that coupon, and that lady got her possessions free because of that. And the registrar, the clerk, or whatever it's called, looked at me and he said, there are some good people left in this world. That's the kingdom dream that Jesus has for you and me. At Christmas, it's not just that we give presents, it's that the presence of God has come in a redemptive way and has begun to transform us so that we can live out Mary's dream of the Magnificat as Christians in our community. We have, in our power, the capacity to offer a whole new politics in our world. It is a conspiracy of the kingdom that we conspire together to live in a way that people will say, that's the work of God in this world, and I want to be a part of it. I'm happy to share with you this morning Mary's little dream vision of the Magnificat, and it's our summons at Christmas time to live it out. Mary, what was it like? about the presence of God and the plot of God in this world to change the world through ordinary people like you and me.